Jesus offers a puzzling parable in Luke 11 about a half-done exorcism that leads to a person being worse off at the end than at the beginning. The short story teaches us that it is not enough to simply rid ourselves of something bad, but that we must put something good in its place in order to truly be transformed. Listen now for how God might be inviting us into true transformation. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. When an unclean spirit leaves a person, it wanders through dry places looking for a place to rest, but it doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house cleaned up and decorated. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. They go in and make their home there. That person is worse off at the end than at the beginning. Last September, I tried my first diet, something called the Whole30. Whole30 is a short-term elimination diet in which, for 30 days, you cut out any type of food that essentially isn't whole. No processed foods, no sugar, no alcohol, grains, legumes, soy, dairy. It's pretty much just 30 days of meat, fruits, veggies, nuts, and eggs. Lots and lots of eggs. The idea behind the Whole30 is not to count calories, lose weight, or really attain any specific physical goal. Its purpose is to reestablish and reset your relationship with food. For one month, you eat three whole meals each day, only snack when you really need the energy, and the entire time you know all of the ingredients and everything you eat. Afterwards, you don't just go back to however you were eating before. Instead, you slowly reintroduce elements one by one. You may first try some cheese with a meal and then give it a couple days to see how your body reacts. A few days later, you may make some whole grain toast and then take another few days to reintroduce something else. By taking time on the other side to truly reintegrate, the Whole30 can transform how you eat long-term. Many people end up finding out that certain types of food, maybe gluten or soy, upset their body and seek to eliminate it long-term after Whole30. Others simply notice more mindfulness of how and what they eat, which was the goal of my attempt. It didn't happen. September 30th became October 1st, and Halloween candy started to appear on shelves with abundance, and this was pre-vaccine. I was stressed out from the pandemic and its solitude, and that candy became good company. By Halloween itself, the only mindfulness I had of how and what I was eating was my attention to the dwindling candy bowl on my entryway shelf. It's safe to say that I was worse off at the end than at the beginning. I thought about the stomach aches I had from all of that candy and my state after doing Whole30 when I first read our verses from Luke 11 in preparation for preaching today. This passage is a puzzling piece of Jesus' teaching, an obscure verse that many don't pay attention to, but one I heard in some sermon some years ago that's left an impression ever since. Immediately before this passage, Jesus cast out a demon, empowering a mute man to speak. Luke says that some witnesses tested him, not trusting the power Jesus was using, but he insists that he is working by God's power. Otherwise, how would he be able to drive out such evil spirits? Jesus declares that every kingdom divided against itself becomes a desert, and that whoever is not with me is against me. 
before offering this illustration of an unclean spirit with seven sinister friends. It's an intense illustration, but one Jesus uses to affirm that his power and work were not empty activity. One scholar notes about this moment that what is present in Jesus is not simply the absence of evil, but a positive power for good symbolized in the reign or kingdom of God. If his critics had been right, those to whom Jesus offered ministry would be worse off at the end than at the beginning, which is never the case in the Gospels. When Jesus encounters someone like the person he had just empowered to speak, he is healing and teaching about something far from empty. People are not just left touched up, decorated with some spiritual high or shallow wisdom. They are truly transformed. Now, most of us no longer talk about demons quite like we read about in the New Testament. When we hear casting out demons, we think of horror movies like The Exorcist. We may be tempted then to hear Jesus' parable in Luke 11 as a mere metaphor, a piece of advice not just to rid ourselves of bad habits or behaviors, but to put better ones in their place. But we don't have to stop there. There's a way to think tangibly, though not magically, about powers like those we read about in the Gospel of Luke. There's a book to which I often return called The Powers That Be by theologian Walter Wink, who begins the book by saying that spiritual reality is at the heart of everything, from photos to supernovas, from a little league baseball to Boeing aircraft. Wink looks at the way in which, in which ancient communities talked about heaven and earth and things like demons, spirits, and powers, and he insists that we cannot reduce their language to some historic, historic hyperbole written by people without modern science. We don't have to believe that demons are some invisible creatures wearing red or things we beckon with ancient Latin phrases. But if we take seriously the idea that spirit is at the core of everything, that there is a spiritual dimension to everything in our world, we start to get what the ancients meant when they talked about spirits and powers. Wink describes the spiritual realm as not up in heaven, but as within, and talks about God as not just within me, but within everything. And this is how many contemporary theologians often talk about God, not as a singular being who dwells outside and above us, hidden in the clouds and removed from our world, though powering over it, but rather as the spirit from which everything was created and by which everything is sustained. Later in Luke, Jesus himself says that the kingdom of heaven is neither here nor there, but within we can think of the world as saturated with spirit. There is more than meets the eye. It may not always or ever feel super supernatural, but we each have had moments in which we noticed that there was something going on or in which powers and systems were at work in a situation in a way that couldn't be reduced to a simple material reality. Sometimes such moments are ones that spark movements. In many ways, we are still reeling from the murder of George Floyd last summer and the ways in which so many places realized the powers and systems at work in our world through things like systemic racism and other forms of injustice. 
organizers and educators often talk about how in a world in which pervasive racism has been so perpetuated, we must be anti-racist, not just not racist. Because racism is more than bigotry or personal actions, it's something baked into the social systems of our world. We can and should think in concrete and natural ways about systemic evils, but those moments in which they manifest are not reducible to simple explanation. There is power within them that's truly evil, and they require real, not empty, power to overcome. Such powers, to Walter Wink, are the powers that be, the powers that are very much present in our own world, and the same powers reflected in the stories of demons and evil spirits in the New Testament. The things that Jesus taught about and their potential for transformation are more than just empty metaphors. And if we miss that, we risk not some magic type of evil possessing us with its seven best friends when we least expect it. We risk succumbing to more real and more subtle powers at play in a world around us that work against God's hopes for harmony, peace, justice, and love. This was all floating around my mind as I was preparing for our recent church trip to Colorado for our annual community camp. I was excited for a simple agenda, breakfast and dinner together, a Vesper service each night, and chances to celebrate our church community through hiking and other excursions. Plus, it was exciting to go on a long trip away with a large group of people that had been too long. As I considered our theme for Vespers, I wanted to create a space to do more than just celebrate our trip, as if the multitude of things we had experienced since the last trip of its sort were not still weighing on and in us. The past 18 months have been a wild ride. We each have experienced challenges and tragedies like we could not have expected. And I wanted to provide us a chance each day surrounded by the beautiful transcendence of the Rocky Mountains to notice and name everything from the joy of a summer that for many of us has been splendid to the grief we were still holding and processing. Each night we reflected on and shared about our joy, our grief, our hope, our fear, knowing that as we name and make space to notice the spectrum of things we carry, God's own spirit within us creates space for more wholeness and flourishing. Our meditations and conversations were healing. It was important not to simply pretend that the past was behind us without consequence, touching ourselves up with fresh memories and happy moments, but to actually take stock of the ways in which we had been transformed by everything we'd experienced. On the way home from community camp, April and I listened to a podcast that warned against the dangers of pretending away the past and demonstrated the transformative potential of naming what actually has happened. This American Life did an episode about the Dakota War of 1862, which took place in Minnesota over the span of about six weeks and resulted with hundreds of people dead, both Dakota and white settlers. The war ended when U.S. forces executed 38 Dakota men, making it the largest mass execution in American history. Now, this war obviously has a complicated history that this American life does an excellent job of telling, but it's a history that has often not been told. 
Many native Minnesotans had never heard of the executions. They had even heard of the war. And for a long time, the only story that was told was that the Dakota people on the settled land needed to be put in their place. Violence was prolific on both sides, but leading up to the war, the Dakota people had been driven into massive debt by settlers and immigrants through laws and policies that intentionally kept them poor. And they had been promised large swaths of their own land, but barely received a fraction of what was promised. Remarkably, there were still many, a majority, who were doing their best to assimilate and work with the settlers, even after how poorly their people had been treated on what was their own land to begin with. In recent years, though, the full story has received increasing attention, and at the 150th anniversary of the Dakota War, the Minnesota governor expressed that he was appalled by this history, and he named how the United States broke its promises using deception and brutal force to take Dakota land. The Dakotan historian Gwen Westerman said that these words gave her overwhelming relief. Sometimes when teaching about this war and other moments in U.S. history, she gets accusatory questions like, well, what do you want? What more? Do you want reparations? She responds with, what we want is acknowledgement that this happened. To her, the governor's words were not the end of reconciliation, but an important and transformative turning point. In refusing to just touch up and clean up the past, this honest acknowledgement broke open new potentials for the future. Our scripture today immediately came to mind a couple of months ago at a staff retreat when Carla asked us to think about a scripture, hymn, or image that summed up how we felt about the pandemic. This lesson of Jesus felt and feels pertinent. I remember feeling like the initial shutdowns in 2020 were an exorcism of sorts. So many people have said that staying at home cast out so much from their lives busy schedules, and burdensome habits. And in many ways, this pandemic has and still is forcing us to reassess our values and priorities. Now, the lockdown and months since have not been easy. On top of disease and death, we were reeling from sudden change and so much unknown, and we experienced or witnessed economic and social devastation. One journalist said that COVID-19 didn't lay America low, it simply revealed what had long been forsaken. And this forsakenness was highlighted by the protests and reforms sparked last summer. So much had been suddenly cast out and away, and inside what was left was an illumination, a glimpse of what the world might look like. When we as a collective people turned our attention to the pandemic and confronted the broken systems in our world, we demonstrated a capacity I had not seen before. I still wonder, what else might we be capable of doing? One of my favorite philosophers talks about how utopia can be this thing that's lodged into fleeting and fractured moments. It's not a permanent place that lives far off in the future, but something we feel in moments that shine with potential and possibility. 
These are moments by which we can be transformed, moments which he says call us to think about our lives and times differently, to look beyond a narrow version of the here and now. Utopia is about an insistence on something else, something better, something dawning. This, to me, is the same kind of utopia that Jesus talked about when he talked about the kingdom of God, one that isn't removed from us in some distant future, but something within us, even in the mess of our lives and world. I think we got a glimpse, a feeling, of this kingdom in those moments last spring. As so much was cast out, we glimpsed our capacity for creating a different world, one that's better for all people. But a momentary glimpse during a temporary removal of things is not enough to transform us. I worry that we will be too tempted to turn away from such transformation and just clean house instead, getting rid of what feels bad and putting up some new decoration in its place. We cannot just create an, a new normal that's the old one just a bit touched up. We must make changes that are inhospitable to the unclean spirits and powers that want to go in and make their home in our lives. We're in the middle of a moment that's testing us. All summer, I've sensed those demons that were cast out last year, knocking on the doors of our world, trying their best this time with reinforcement to wreak havoc in their old home. Demons of burdensome busyness, unjust indifference, and systems that serve only a few while others struggle to survive and flourish. And we're in the middle of a moment that's testing us as a church, too. Next week, we relaunch our three Sunday services and begin to rebuild a new normal for our weekly congregational life. And we do this in the midst of the excitement of our centennial, which invites us to both celebrate and take an honest look at our past in order to make the most of what's ahead. As we embark on building our future together next week and beyond, will we be truly transformed by everything we've learned and shared? Or will we just touch ourselves up with the clean surface and fresh decoration? God invites us to make radical changes in our daily life, individually and collectively, that are not empty, but full of the dreams God has of a world healed of its brokenness, made whole by justice, peace, and love. What an incredible invitation. Yet, what a scary one too. We don't know fully how to refurnish our homes, and we may fear that the evil spirits, despite our best efforts, will come back with friends and wreak havoc. But the good news is we don't have to know, not fully, we simply have to insist on something else, something better, something dawning. The realm into which Jesus invites us is not empty, but one in which the real power of God emerges and builds something with, within, and beyond us. We don't have to know exactly what it will look like, but we simply have to name and acknowledge what we know, feel, and have experienced, and we must insist on something new, something else, something like the kingdom of heaven. If we are not intentional about acknowledging and insisting on true transformation, we will find a new normal that's touched up, but that's no better, actually worse than our state before. 
But if we name and acknowledge, check in with ourselves and make space for and insist on transformation, God will refurnish and fill our lives, transforming us into a home for true peace, abundant joy, and eternal love and life. Amen.